Welcome to the Reinventing Education podcast. This is a podcast for teachers, parents, or students who are interested in reinventing what education is. I'm Rob McLeod. In the autumn, Brendan and I spoke with six groups that we believed were on the cutting edge of education. What was interesting to us is between these six groups, they had very similar ideas, values, and practices, even though they had not been in communication with one another or informing each other's practice. In our last few episodes, Brennan and I have been sifting back through these conversations, trying to connect the dots between these six interviews, highlighting the commonalities that we see with those we consider on the leading edge of education. Today, we try to summarize the the final little bits of gold that we've picked out of this. In this episode, we'll look at differentiation and inquire into what can be customized for a student. Assessment, what is its role in the future of school? Teacher authenticity, how bringing your whole self to your work matters, as well as the changing and fluid roles that we see teachers upholding within development schools. And finally, we'll be looking at the connections from within the school to the outside world, outside of the school building. Now, we're pretty confident that you can follow our conversation in this summary episode, even if you haven't listened to the six interviews. But we do name drop some of the educators we spoke with and the institutions that they are involved with, so here's a quick refresher. We spoke with Chris Baum of the Millennium School Middle School in San Francisco, with Armin Sieber of the Integralis Tagesschule in Winterthur, a high school in Switzerland, Tryon, Anna, and Karina of the Alternative University, a self-directed learning culture in Romania, Integral Educational Consultant Silke Weiss of LearnKulturzeit in Germany, Educational Leader Katerina Yasko from Ukraine, and Joran Oppelt, a parent involved in the unschooling scene in Florida. As always, we look at these topics through the lens of the four values that we see in play in education, those being the more traditional self-discipline value, the modern mark-based strategic achievement-oriented ambition value, the sensitivity value, which looks to meet children where they are at and not make unnecessary demands on them, and the development value, which is largely what we're attempting to articulate as we believe it's on the cutting edge of education and we're just seeing it emerge now in real time. So on with our final summary of our six discussions looking at what is a development school. Brendan O'Leary. Rob McLeod. Got a few topics to wrap up our conversation on development schools. Yep. Shall we start with student differentiation? Yes, let's. So I, let's first just start by defining differentiation. Okay. You're someone who's listening who is a teacher or is not a teacher. We may have different definitions for this. Without having something prepared, I would just say differentiation means that what you are doing in class or how you are doing those things in class or how you are being assessed or tested on those things can be different for different people. Uh, And you would make those changes or alterations based on the needs of the human being and the student that you're with. Is yeah. that an accurate definition? I think so. And I think anyone that's that's been into a school in, in Britain, America, uh, Canada in the last 10 to 15 years will, will 
have experienced this. It's it's a differentiation is a pretty integral part of the uh, like ambition system as it is right now. Um, although that was a hard kind of fought battle and that kind of like that's still going on for exactly what it looks like but essentially if you walk into a classroom in any of those places you will see different students potentially doing different activities and being assessed in different ways although they would generally be studying the same uh, topic or concept um so historically we yeah go ahead one small distinction between maybe the more ambition centered approach to differentiation and the more sensitivity-based approach is in the ambition system, differentiation is happening as a strategy to ensure the best marks or highest level of student achievement. Because if you're setting the bar too high for a student constantly um, who's falling behind, they'll never catch up. And if you're not pushing a higher level student further, they're kind of plateauing or unnecessarily leveling out in proving their learning or what they can do. So it's at the ambition value, the reason you differentiate is because it's a better strategy for higher scores for the student, for the teacher, for the school, for the district, etc. Whereas in this sensitivity value, differentiation really is more there, again, to meet a student's level, but also their interests, their needs, maybe their learning style, uh, maybe some of their learning preferences, a setup like that. And I'd argue to a large degree, you don't see much differentiation in the self-discipline um, school. If you do, it's likely just teacher help. Yeah, I would say so. So you may not see any at all other than the odd word from the teacher. I would say that in... in in these ambition systems, you would see different students potentially on different courses to take different levels of tests uh, and so on. And then in the in the sensitivity inclusion school, there is much more of a push towards personalization of learning and attempting to meet each student at their own kind of level. Um, and we we run programs such as the Writers Workshop that attempts to have very open-ended tasks so that students can be met at their own level. And we will definitely get into this much, much further, but to then take it to the development schools. Um, so obviously, Joran, Joran talked about unschooling, which by its very nature needs to be very, very, well, just will be differentiated because you only have the one student and so you are you are gearing everything around the needs of that particular student and what we saw in a lot of the schools the millennial school millennium school the, the romanian um alternative university and and the tagesschule armin runs in switzerland we saw all of these guys talk about that uh, responding to the individual needs of the student and we talked a little bit last time about how that was much more possible because of the small ratios but um, ratios of staff to students the ratio of teachers or teaching assistants to students which was generally as we said unschooling one-to-one -one, 
in the Romanian university, they had a mentoring system, which also meant you had a one-to-one ratio. I think the, um, I think the integral Tiger Schule has a ratio is it of three. And I'm not sure what the ratio was in the millennium school, but I think it's probably not much more than seven to eight. Um, so it becomes harder as you get into larger numbers, but do you want to just maybe get a little bit of a feel of what you, your interpretation is of, of differentiation in a developmental school? Well, to me, the, the newest thing that we had heard came from Armin Sieber from the Integralis Tagesschule in Switzerland. I mentioned three different ways that we traditionally would differentiate in a school. So you differentiate what the student is learning about. So maybe the level of complexity is one way to think of that. Are they doing adding one digit numbers or are they adding two digit numbers? You can differentiate that. Then you can differentiate like what it is they're doing, the actual tasks. Maybe some kids are doing a worksheet, some kids are doing something hands-on, whatever works best for them. And then third, um, you can differentiate how you're assessing them. What does the final test look like? And it's probably going to match whatever you had them doing in class. Now, Armin mentioned this idea of like, it's sort of taking that second example, how you do something or what you're doing And I think really expanding on it in a new developmental way, which is differentiating by providing you essentially three different classrooms depending on your preferred stage of development. And it actually, I think, mirrors the actual words we've been using on the podcast. He essentially had a self-discipline math class, an ambition math class, and a sensitivity math class. There's a math class you can go to, and the teacher just tells you what to do, and you do it. And if that works best for you, you have that option. Or you can go to a more ambition-led math class where the teacher is setting goals for you and you're setting goals and there's a clear you know, achievement recording and a lot of data and all these sorts of things. Um, that's also available to you. Or there's a sensitivity math class where it's more open-ended and more your exploration of what are you interested in and different strategies, different different ways of going about things. So to me, that was the newest form of differentiation that had come through in our discussions here. The idea that you could actually differentiate by the values we've been discussing on the, on the podcast and make those three things explicitly available to the students depending on how they best learn. I think that is a, the one revolutionary idea that I heard in the six interviews and I keep going I, I've talked about this several times already because it, it did it was just a, a way of differentiating that fit with developmental learning but I'd never even considered or come across before in any way shape or form because what Chris at the millennial millennium school taught uh, gave a really good uh, um, description of their very open-ended kind of like real world inquiries and absolutely awesome but it had some connections to what we're doing i think the way he described it was more advanced than many of the ways we're inquiring right now and that obviously differentiates in its nature that each student's asking their own set of questions and making their own responses to it but if you add that layer on top of this that no matter what activity or what uh, inquiry we're doing 
you also have the option of your relationship with the teacher or the format of your learning that yeah i think that is something that i really really like to try and get try out in my classroom i'm not sure how it would work practically um but it's something that's really on my mind that you have and it, and it wouldn't be a completely open choice by the student it would be a negotiation by its nature that you would you would negotiate and confer with students as to whether it was working for them it wouldn't be like oh you're choosing to do the open-ended task with no nobody um coming to you and there's there's um there's there's no um there's no test at the end or whatever and it's like yeah sure you go ahead you do that and then six months later absolutely nothing has happened the idea is that there's there's a healthy way to do this and the teacher would be part of that negotiation and if i recall correctly armin was also saying that within those three different let's say value representational classrooms there would actually be a range of student ages or student abilities yeah within that class so I'm going to make up some numbers, but let's say you could have, you know, some grade six, some grade seven, some grade eight, some grade nine, and some grade 10 students in that self-discipline classroom or ambition classroom or the sensitivity classroom. You can have each of those um, values made available to you, but the thing that's, it's like two layers of differentiation. You get yeah. your, the value you want differentiated. And then within that value, there would be another layer of differentiation, of differentiating the level of complexity of the math, the task you do, um, or the assessment. So it's like a new first step of how you would differentiate is what we saw in the Integralist Tagesschule. But what it does is it, it just makes clear what is usually invisible, which is the model of teaching. So again, I briefly mentioned the writer's workshop before. It is a model of teaching. You have a mini lesson and then students work independently while you speak one-to-one -one with these students. The, the, in England, the traditional, what we would call three-part lesson is a 20-minute input. Then the students will go off and work on th usually three related but differentiated layered at leveled tasks before you come together at the end it's unspoken but those two models there match him uh, are kind of what we're talking about um so yeah so shall we move on to the assessment uh yeah. part do you want to uh, kind of just define assessment i mean I, i'm guessing a lot of people will already know but especially i'm talking about terms like formative and summative which may sure so discussion assessment historically came online with the ambition value i'm not saying there were not assessments in the self-discipline schools but they were not front and center and in fact for most of the things i've found report cards didn't really show up on the scene where your level of achievement was being assessed till like the late 1800s. So we essentially had about 120 or so years of schooling before report cards with a grade on them showed up. And yeah. the belief before that was you show up, you do what we say, and you got it. With the ambition value, we challenged that assumption and we said, oh, we've done something, and now you have to prove that you can do it 
to the degree that we want you to do it. A less wordy way of saying that is just we have student achievement objectives, student achievement goals, and you need to prove you can do the goal we've set for you. And it takes uh, inspiration, I guess, almost from the scientific method. Over time, the ambition value has almost become like a classroom that's based around a science experiment. And at its best, I would say what it does is it does a diagnostic assessment, which tests where the students already at. Because there's a reasonable chance the kid already knows what you want them to know. And it would be worthwhile to find that out before you even start. And if you're in a more sensitivity-based paradigm, then you might just say, oh, the kid has the free pass for this. They get to do something else. If they don't have it, though, then great. <laughs> Our teaching is exactly what this kid needs because they, they don't yet have this learning objective or curriculum expectation solidly um, within them that they can demonstrate they understand this or can do this thing or the skill, whatever it is. So there's usually three kind of assessments along the way. This diagnostic, which diagnoses what the student knows walking into this. Then there'll be some teaching, some activities, some student learning, student projects, whatever. And at its best, the ambition system will check in along the way doing formative assessments, seeing what learning is forming, I guess. Um, checking along the way, sort of like, you could almost, I'm coming up with this off the top of my head, but it's almost like how you check a meal if it's ready. It's like, oh, it's getting closer. Yeah, the temperature's almost there. Yeah, the sauce is thickening up. Okay, good. So you know that what you're doing is having an impact, really, is what the formative assessments are for. And then finally, there'll be some kind of summative assessment, which is at the end where we go, okay, you've been doing a lot of stuff. Now we're going to usually do this one-off assessment, usually. And our summative assessment is going to check if you've gotten the thing or not, or the degree to which you are meeting our expectation. So to move this just really quickly from very abstract to the practical, it might be we say, okay, we want the kids to be able to add double-digit numbers. You do a diagnostic assessment, you give the kids a couple double-digit numbers, you see student A can't do any of it, they don't understand the steps, the procedures, student B gets it, they can already do double-digit. So you could say, all right, don't even have to do that teaching and learning here with student B, they've already met the expectation. We might do something to deepen or widen their understanding, uh, but they don't need the same thing the other kid does. Then along the way, we'll give the students some mini lessons, hands-on tasks to uh, learn the skills and procedures and algorithms and tricks of how to do double digit. And along the way, we'll you know, throw them a question or two and see if they can do it. That would be the formative. And that gives the teacher the information to say, oh, I need to course correct here and do something a little different. And then at the end, there'll be a summative assessment, usually just called a test or an exam. And the idea is, well, there's 10 double-digit addition questions. Out of 10, how many of them did they get right? And this really has like every aspect of that ambition value in place because what matters the most is that data at the end of it. Your measurement of the student's level of success or achievement is what the whole kit and caboodle is centered around. That's what it's focused on. 
So it makes sense that the actual procedure uh, informing what the teaching looks like is really all done in service of measuring, checking, and quantifying what the students and the teachers are doing. Yeah, I think this is a good explanation of a, of a pretty complex topic. Once you get beyond the idea that assessment means a test. Um, and now, and it, to many people, that's what it, it does mean, right? As you explain, I, we'll dip into this a little bit into the notes, but I think that what was clear is that this is a big tussle. This is, this is a big, big area because we talked about this a few days ago. The very notion of learning, progress, and measuring that progress is a, an ambition paradigm concept. And we're, and not it, we're not ready to let go of it. Really, yeah, it's still really the center of essentially all modern education around the world. And at best, the sensitivity value is trying to bring sensitivity to that measurement. Sensitivity is trying to bring sensitivity to um, the need to put numbers on report cards at the end of the year. Now, of course, there are examples of, I think, sensitivity schools that have replaced those numbers with sentences and have replaced the idea of A's and B's or 1's, 2's, 3's, whatever ranking system you use. And they've replaced it by actually just saying in words the, those learning expectations like, you know, Brendan can add two-digit plus two-digit numbers and that's the report card. But still somewhere down the line, there's data tracking to see whether what's happening in the classroom is having the desired impact or not. Well, I don't necessarily think we can have this discussion here or we, we, we really just are going to go off on the deep end. But So let's talk about what we've seen and we'll save what, this for another episode. Yeah, so why... <laughs> Reading the notes and the reason why I'm not necessarily jumping directly into anything is because I think this is the, like I said, the area where we we didn't really get too many answers. I think this is something that each one of these um, educators is struggling with or grappling with is probably a better word in the sense that I think both... Uh, Chris Barm and Armin both said at their school they the their students will still take statewide or accredited uh, tests when they leave their school, and there's definitely a little bit of cognitive dissonance there for me in the a developmental school, which is bringing each student to their own needs but yet still needs to be tapered into, obviously not fully, we're not talking about a school that devotes all of its time to teaching to the test, but still, it's, it's somewhat unlikely that those tests will meet the needs of their students. And so they are in this compromise that, that yeah, like I said, it's a cognitive dissonance, I guess, Within our society, I don't think it is. 
Okay. I don't know if it's a cognitive dissonance. I think it's expanding out the center of the development. If we just zoom in on what serves the individual student for themselves and yeah. their interests, then I agree there's some cognitive dissonance here. Of At the end of this, you still have to do the, the test that the state or the country says. Mm. I think a difference here, though, is these students are growing up in a society that has this. We, they are growing up within a system that does still put a lot of value behind a one-day test that determines, depending where you live, can determine a lot yeah. about what the next options are for you. That is an authentic thing in, in the child's life. It might not represent the values that have been happening in that school, but outside those school walls, this is a part of the student's reality of existing within the country. Yeah, sorry, I don't think I, I was being clear. I don't mean it's a cognitive dissonance within the schools. I mean it's a cognitive dissonance within the student's life that they that so much is put, emphasis is put on this next step and this certification that goes against what the school and what they are trying to achieve within the education. Um, mm. What I think the, on the one last, I'm going to completely avoid it and ramrod my point I wanted to make okay. anyways. Good. Uh, I'm the worst at improv. You know how you're not supposed to say no when no, the other guy you. offers you a suggestion? <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. I don't wish to go to the magical wonderland. The, the question you just posed, I think, is that deserves, deserves its own episode, I think. Okay. We're, like, we're, we're making a little note on the sides here, like, okay. Need a whole other episode to discuss assessment. Oh, yeah. a whole other one to discuss differentiation. <clears throat> In short, what I do want to point out is between all of the interviews, each of the people we talked to had some way of wanting to measure development. Mm. And I think this is yeah. a, an important nuance between ambition, which is trying to measure achievement yeah. or success, like we talked about with the three different forms of assessment and yeah. learning outcomes and objectives. There, we've already set the standards on the wall and we're measuring how high the kids can jump and, and meet them. I think that still echoes on up into the development system because mm -hmm. if development is your value, there are ways of measuring development. And if someone is developing and how quickly or how widely or horizontally they're developing. Yeah. And each of these schools, I think, still needed to meet that need for measurement. And, and measurement being a gift that ambition brought in because prior to ambition in those self-disciplined schools, you didn't have the measurement of competence or ability. And there are still the pockets out there. There are still pockets out there of um, self-disciplined schools that, that are still not in a place where they're really comfortable in, in measuring things and comparing student progress. And that in itself in 2019 is uh, a problem for the school and for the students. So yeah, I absolutely agree. But my, so two, two points. One, we, 
we're struggling to get past that because as we move into sensitivity, we become a little bit afraid of those measurements on some level. But again, that's not for today. But I do think what we did hear from Chris at the uh, Millennium School was their attempt to, and I mean, their attempt to codify these developmental stages into a curriculum and then assess that development. So I think that's where you're going. Yeah. So why don't you just unpack that for us, if you would. (laughs) Well, you can put mercury into a thermometer and then put any numbers you want on the side to indicate how warm it is outside. You can use Celsius, you can use Fahrenheit, you can use Kelvin, you can use different measuring scales. What I think is the most important thing at the development value, it's not important what scale of development or what numbers you put up the side for your tick marks. What we saw between all six of these is all six of them had some system for the tracking and measurement of human development and human complexity. And maybe I'll just leave it at that for today. Yeah, and I I really want, I think we need to spend some time finding out more about that subject. But yeah, let's move on. I gave us a new episode. I gave us um, two minutes on a subject that was not really mentioned, which was learning spaces. I think we talked a couple of times and I think Silke brought up having beautiful schools that are really inspiring. And I think the guys at the Romanian University talked about how physical environments um, become part of the emotional state. So we're not really going to get into it, but a quick, a quick 30-second blurb on your feel on learning spaces, classrooms, schools, etc., All of the values have their own approach to it. All of them use the environment to support their value in some way. I think the self-discipline, ambition, and sensitivity schools often have very similar-looking classrooms. We were making the joke about the classroom of the future, basically just having like colorful desks and colorful chairs and and e-readers instead of actual textbooks. It's like, well, it's the same stuff. You're just remixing it. Sure. But I think the one thing I did hear come through um, in those two examples, and I think more from our discussions, was the idea that a physical space has an impact on the students, the culture, and what happens in there. And I don't mean just the color palettes that's used on the wall or, you know, the designs or interesting things that are up but how the humans actually utilize the space, how they move through the space, and what the actual space within the closed walls of a school or beyond the school, um, how can, I guess maybe the question that comes out of all this is, how can you utilize the physical environment as one more tool for supporting human development? supporting the practices or activities we want to have happen and to support the culture. And I don't have a simple answer to that, but that's, I think, the ongoing inquiry. How can Absolutely. we use space to uphold our, our intention? The, the shared 
physical space and the shared kind of emotional or social space between the two of them, that's actually what the student is experiencing the entire time they're in school. So we do not want to underplay the importance of that. I think it didn't come up just because the questions we were asking were leading much more down the, these lines of leadership and assessment. But these, each one of the um, educators we spoke to will would have a, a really clear um, vision on how that space, physical and social, affects their students. And uh, we just pause here while we go back and ask all six of them that question. Now, I think it's time for us to move on to the the role of teachers in this. Now, we've talked lots and lots about teachers already, so. I'm not sure how much there's left to say, but let's dig back into the the teacher is an authentic human. Uh, the teacher is a real person who's in that classroom in the moment. Yeah, we're we're a whole being. We're more than our role. And to be fair, I think each value again has their own kind of interpretation of this sentiment. The idea that, yeah, I'm a teacher, but I'm also more than that too. I think one of the differences you see at the development level, and I believe it was Silke Weiss from Learn Kulturzeit who said this, that teaching is a life path. Yeah. So yes, you are a teacher. Yes, you might be a mother, father, brother, sister, husband, wife, whatever. You will have many roles. But the taking on of being a teacher if you're bringing, I guess, like your whole heart to it, it is a life path and has such an impact on, on how you spend your time on this planet. And I want to jump just slightly out of the talks because I feel this summarizes one of the points that all six were getting to. Um, there's the book, Every, An Everyone Culture. And of course, right now I'm just blanking on who the authors are. Um, but... It talks about how in every career field, yes, you have one job, but you're carrying out two jobs. And one is the job that's on your job description of, you know, you're teaching grade six, you're doing whatever, blah, blah, blah. The other job you have is covering your tracks so that you don't look incompetent or get fired or have to be like publicly shamed or have your vulnerabilities or insecurities revealed. Okay. And... They talk about in the book that the healthiest workplaces and arguably developmental organizations, which is the term they use in the book, developmental organizations say, nope, both jobs get put on the table. And we talk through and coach through all of this. And I think that was the through line that I saw in all six conversations yeah. was the teacher who's showing up is not just inhabiting a role. The teacher who's showing up is bringing their full self. Now, part of that full self can be the competent teacher. Mm. But if you imagine yourself as having many split personalities, there's a lot of other personalities that typically would get pushed aside to carry out being an authoritarian teacher in self-discipline or you know, being the teacher who sacrifices everything else in service of achievement and ambition. Or the teacher who maybe has to navigate frustrations or some controversial opinions that wouldn't resonate well in a sensitivity school. The development teacher 
just as the students have, has the permission to bring their full selves and authentically connect with each other beyond just the roles or the masks. Yeah, and I think this idea of we are more than our role, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that I think you have to be entirely open in the way you would with your best friend or your partner. It, it, there's still an element of the relationship has to be defined between teachers and teachers, teachers and students. So, but but I think what all the all the people we interviewed were hitting on with this idea that you um, try to be your real self in in that classroom. So you try to develop the relationship so that you can be as honest as possible. And there's a place beyond knowing and not knowing. And I think within both the self-discipline and the ambition kind of values, knowledge and knowing and authority are central in many ways. And so if you're operating from this place or inside a school that has this mindset, this is, there's a lot of talk in this area, but it's actually really hard to do. So this is also contextual as well. It's, you can, you can begin to change yourself or to be more honest and vulnerable in yourself. But if you are not in a place that's open to that, it may not be a great idea. But obviously, these developmental schools, they are set up for this. They're hiring people and they're training students and teachers and parents to understand that we have to live our values and that means, as Armin said, that we have to walk the talk and we have to be able to uh, find the aspects of us that isn't just about right and wrong and that there's a negotiation and the, and it's okay to not know. And actually, in many ways, the not knowing is the, the best place because this is, I think, a term that Chris used is kind of like your knowledge edge or something along those lines that you, you're working at your edge. Um, and of course, if you're working at the edge of your skills and knowledge, you are one step away from not knowing or not being able to do it at all times. And I think that's the big difference that the, the, the guys we spoke to were saying, that's the best place to be right on the edge of knowing and not knowing as you go forward. Yeah. Because this, this I'm sort of paraphrasing Otto Scharmer, who's the author of Theory U, but when you're on that edge for yourself personally or within the culture of your group or with as an institution or an organization, you're literally on the cutting edge of the future. You're on the cutting edge of something new that has not yet been. Yeah, and this is where the idea of potential and a lot of ambition schools will talk heavily about students meeting and being what they can be and meeting their potential. But often when you dig into it, and when I worked in schools that were more in this mainstream ambition mindset, what, what they've generally done is they've kind of narrowed down all being all you can be to basically 
getting the highest level of accreditation in this particular area. So again, as you spoke earlier, it's not ignoring that, but it's also widening it and saying there's much more to this. And of course, the first thing that somebody may say that's in a more self-discipline or ambition mindset is, well, you've got, there's some things you've got to know. Yeah, there absolutely are. And I mentioned this last week when we talked about curriculum. Let's start with that list of the things that are non-negotiable and we absolutely have to know. And then let's go with each one of those as far as we can go. And we talk about multiplication tables or talking about reading phonics. Okay, so you, you begin to get those areas of skills, but then as you push on further and bring more, bring high level thought into it, it goes beyond just comprehending into applying this knowledge and that's when it's only when you're doing activities and tasks and projects and inquiries within your classroom where there's an opportunity for application and synthesis of knowledge and bringing ideas together that you can actually set up your school to give people the opportunity to go uh, into this place where they don't know. So we're not saying that we don't know anything. We're saying that we know as much as we can, but we're going beyond that as well. That There's was two that thoughts was rambling, that came up from... I was rambling, but you inspired something that um, okay. a minute ago I didn't have in my mind. Good. Now I'm going to set aside the joke comment. I'm going to get to the more important thing first. What this is allowing for is, I think in the development value, we point out a blind spot that the previous three values had in schools. And that's the fact that things can fail in life. I mean, literally, schools fail. And I don't just mean like, get low marks, but schools close because they they're close so poorly run or things aren't going well. Yeah. People fail. Failure is a part of life. But I think there is a blind spot that's not ever articulated in self-discipline, ambition, or sensitivity to acknowledge the degree to which sometimes things don't go as planned. Mm. And that is a fact of a real life. And this is too in the moment maybe for me to clearly articulate how each value would say it, but ambition jumps to mind where there's kind of this idea that like, no, everyone has to pass. Everyone has to do well. The school has to do well. Next year, marks are going to go up. Next year, we're going to do this. Next year, that. And it's like the reality is a large number of the kids that aren't meeting that just disappear and drop out of the system. And then there's a blind spot to say, well, it, it's not a problem as long as you just stay within the game. And I'm, I'm remembering a story of a, fr a friend who was talking about a self-discipline type school they were in where they were showing up and saying like, hey, you know, we offer services for at-risk youth and students who, you know, might be having some social problems or whatever. And the school was saying, oh, we don't have those students. Mm. Like saying, oh, like your school does not have students that aren't fitting your system? No, we, we don't have those kinds of kids. And of course, this person was like, wow, well, I want to see what you guys are doing here. And of course, after lifting up a few rocks and looking behind a few logs, 
realize that either these kids are completely ignored by the staff or literally just shipped off to other schools so that yeah. the school doesn't have to address the fact that the school is not able to engage with the student. There's more than that, but I'll leave it at that for no, now. We've touched on this before a little bit, and there's a concept called rolling off where they'll drop off the lower 10% each year. It's, it's frowned upon, but it's very hard to actually stop in, in public schools, uh, sorry, private schools, which we confusingly call public schools in, in Britain. But... <laughs> private schools um a little anecdote about that of how um some schools will actually um ignore or deliberately deceive the levels of some of the students um there was a school that shall remain nameless where the government inspectors were in and a teacher walked one of the very very low ability students around the outside of the school several times avoiding the gaze of the government inspector so the inspector never got a chance to interact with this child and therefore could not ask them any questions because the inspectors would go into your classrooms and say things like so what's your objective now what's your next step what level are you at and this child obviously would have no concept of this so the solution was well why don't you just take him for a walk around the outskirts of the school for the next hour? Uh, mind-blowing. Which is but, um, equally mind-blowing, comedic, and dehumanizing. Yeah. Just sad. We, well, and that, ex that scales up from that example of one student to entire schools. I don't have the story in front of me, but it's coming to mind. In Ontario, in Canada, there is one of the universities in Waterloo, and I forget if it was Waterloo or Laurier. I think it was Waterloo, who has a very well-established, highly respected engineering program. Hmm. And what the engineering program started to do was notice that after year one, year two, there were always huge drop-offs in student performance and huge numbers of like student dropouts. So the engineering department, being an engineering department, tried to figure out what's going on here. It's and they started tracking, did some engineering, tracked backwards the students who were being left behind, dropping out, quitting, or just systemically pushed out. And they started tracking each of them back and started to notice that large pools of them were coming from the same schools. Okay. And the university themselves created their own scale of essentially trustworthiness to say, if we've got 100 students who all got an A at their school, we know that an A at a school at the top of the list is actually correlated to an A. And the students from schools at the bottom of the list, their A might be more correlated to a C or a D. Wow. And these schools have been, as a whole, either intentionally or unintentionally, uh, essentially fudging student achievement data. And it took the university, the next step of school, to like go backwards and, and unpick that. This is a tangent. It's a tangent. But I think it is an, it's, it's an example of this blind spot. The idea that no, what yeah. we do works. And I think of the development value, although... Well, no, it's not true. Some of them said it. Chris Baum, 
from the Millennium School, he said, we've done things and it didn't go well. We did things and it didn't go as planned. And we learned from it. And some things we could recover, some things we've made better, some things just had to be jettisoned and set aside. And I think that level of authenticity is required not only for development, but required in a development school so that it's actually walking the talk and embodying its values. Yeah, and you're scaling up and down. And we, we obviously can go on forever with our favorite subject of horror stories of schools that we, that we know and may have worked in. Um, but that's scaling up and down. So what we talked about with leadership is horizontal and it is, it is in the moment. It's responsive, it's authentic, it's developing, taking that into in, to the students, we're, we're teaching it, we're supporting it, but we are wanting in teachers as well. Um, again, it's just another rich area that we would like to, we're going to have to dig into about what that might practically look like more in the classroom, but onwards and upwards. Another new episode. We, Let's um, touch briefly on the idea of the chameleon nature of a teacher before we move off from teachers and talk about the larger community beyond the school. We've talked about school environment, talked about curriculum assessment, the things within the school. The last piece um, okay. before we hop out of the school, teacher, not only as an authentic human, but just what is a teacher at the development They're changing rule. value. So again, we've talked a lot about what teachers look like in the three main uh, values that we talked about. So the old school authoritarian, uh, the more motivating, but still interested in your academic achievement, possibly above your emotional, the ambition uh, stage. The sensitivity teacher who is very, very interested in your personal and social um, development and inclusion. Again, and well-being. And your well-being generally. And, and again, we're going to say the same thing, that you, we are taking the at the development stage, an explicit choice of which of these three or which blend of these three kind of teachers, and these are stereotypes or archetypes or whatever, but which of these kind of like models applies best to the context. And whichever one, there's a healthy version of the authoritarian teacher there's a healthy version of the ambition-led teacher. There's a healthy version of the um, sensitivity teacher. And we are going to, in the next seven or eight episodes, dig much further into what a healthy and unhealthy self-discipline school looks like and, and so on. But as you move into the sensitivity kind of value, the teacher begins to move into a role that might look a little bit more like a counselor, a coach, alongside the uh, coach in the more sporting sense, the motivator and alongside someone who maybe need to bring in discipline from time to time and that that sense of um, <coughs> adherence to rules and uh, and traditions. So when you get to the development value, it's not surprising to see that a, a mix of all of these things. Um, yeah, so the teacher navigates between these three different values and much earlier we used the analogy of three dials and you know when to turn up your healthy self-discipline knob and when to turn it down when to turn up the healthy aspects of ambition and down and when to bring in the healthy aspects 
turn up the volume on the sensitivity or turn that down. The other thing too isn't just, I, and I guess that really inspires our practices or mm. what we're doing. But the other thing too is just the actual role or function of the teacher can move between coach, as you mentioned, but also maybe just like connector, like the person who is connecting you to people beyond the school. Um, I think the... And, sorry, guys. No, go ahead. Well, I think the, the, the guys in the Romanian um, alternative university gave the idea of the teacher or the mentor in their case wearing the three hats as the facilitator as in I'm going to set you up to do this and help you to do it the organizer which again might be somebody who makes those connections and helps them to practically set out those roles and then the learner themselves that is learning from the student and feeding back in oh this is how we can work together um those, they didn't make a differentiation between whether the student or the teacher was wearing this hat, which is, a, which is a, probably a little bit further down the line than we can go because obviously their students are adults already as they enter the university. With younger children, I think there still needs to be a clear distinction, of course, between the learner and the teacher. But it won't be as clear as the distinction in the Victorian classroom. So shall we move out of the classroom and into the larger community? Yeah. Parental so, involvement, family connections. Well, before we move on, I, I would just like to, to, to touch on something that Silke talked quite a lot about, about teachers who, as the school is changing, may not be ready to take the responsibility or ready to make these changes. Um, we talked. I talked briefly earlier about if you are a sensitivity teacher in a ambition school, it may not be a emotionally safe place for you, a place to share your ideas. This almost reverses that. If you are a, a self-discipline teacher in a school that's moving towards a sensitivity school, there may be a lot of resistance within you. And I think Silke gave us some good examples about how she works with schools where her job was to go in as the as the the learning culture coach and actually try to change the culture within the school that allowed individual teachers to be in the place where they are right now, but know that the school was moving towards a different or wider or deeper set of values. Deeper is not the right word, but a, a different set of values that may bring with it its own uh, positives and negatives. Yeah, and I think there's, there's a risk of this becoming like the opposite end of the magnetic pole where it like repels, scares away, pushes away anybody who's maybe not at this development value. And if you're at you know, a self-discipline, if you're in a self-discipline mindset and an ambition mindset sensitivity, it's not that, oh, we need to get you out of here. With Silka's work, it sounded like she's trying to move it from maybe the just the focus on the individual as we tend to with individual teachers and move it to the school's culture and to understand that we are a learning culture 
Now that might be rooted in the development value. And I might be a teacher who's at the ambition value and still find myself in that school. But it's probably a sign of a healthy development school if I can still be included where I'm at. And I'm not just slowly pushed out because I don't have the, the exact match of values. It becomes pretty complex. And again, I think we sh should leave it there. But I think what we're starting to get at a little bit is that every student is at a different uh, place in their development, every teacher, every school. And we started off with this very bold and simple claim of school has three aims and there are three main uh, paradigms. And it's like... Yeah, that, that was a necessary fiction that is now blooming and blossoming into a complex, a complex and to web. Just, and to just present perhaps the opposite, Katerina Yasko, she also talked about ensuring that we are bringing people with inner maturity into our schools. Yeah. And that, for example, in Ukraine, being a teacher in the public school system is a very low-paid job, very not very socially respected. It was seen at kind of the lower rung of the, the employment structure and perhaps keeping people away um, who really had that inner maturity that would allow more of this to flourish. And she conversely did speak about the importance of bringing the people you want to be around your kids for an entire year into the system and, and yeah. structure. And I think that's a given that every parent would, say and every school would say but as Chris Baum said he can take them up to six months to find the right person to fill their positions um, it's it's tough to find the right person for a developmental school um, yeah we will we will it's tough let's leave it there tough it's tough tough done line drawn Developmental right. schools staffing is tough. That's what we learned. T U F Life School Connection. Life's tough. Life Rob. School Connection. All right. So one theme that we've brought forward before is questioning the barrier, questioning the line between what is school and what's society. What is the school's culture? What is the community or the country or cultures mm. um, culture or society as well? One thing that was very clear between all six interviews, and we've already touched on it here, is the idea of who you are as a teacher in the school and outside of the teacher are intertwined. Similar with who the student is in the school and outside the school are intertwined. So at the development value, we start to see an explicit discussion about the relationships in and out of the school. Of course, all the way back to, you know, a healthy self-discipline school still bringing parents in to do activities with the kids or, you know, sending homework home for the parents to be involved in. And, they, you know, the ambition and sensitivity have their own versions of this too. It's not new, but the development value is explicitly focused on the authentic relationships of what's going on in the school and outside. And I think, so if you draw the kind of concentric circles if you if you go out from the school the first group you will meet our parents and so there then beyond that there's a wider community and then the, the world at large but in terms of a development school 
trying to make those meaningful connections with parents and keep them involved within the school there's there's a need for the school to educate on some level and I think the school I'm at now which I would say is uh, somewhere within the sensitivity value and trying to move in some areas towards developmental we've realized there's a need to continue to educate parents into the the way we teach and the philosophies I did a I did a I kind of talked not too long ago on this concept of growth mindset, as in what we're talking about, being responsive to what's happening to your needs and having persistence in your goals, and as opposed to an old fixed mindset where failure was was the end and was seen as an end point and so on. And so it's kind of... Uh, I think I asked, the, I asked quite a few of the interviewees about about parental um, connections. And I think Chris at the millennial school, millennium school <laughs> kept, he talked about how he would bring the, the parents in for morning training sessions on a Saturday. And then when they followed up with those parents, they would see, and I think you talked about this example before possibly about how the parents were amazed in some places at how what they were learning in these Saturday morning training sessions, they were then able to see within their kids inside the, their homes, especially things such as nonviolent communication. And I think without that parental education, the parents might not see it and may not understand it. And one of the, one of the challenges um, that, that I always face um, in a saying inquiry school is that inquiry is quite a complex uh, system of education that's qu really quite different to the more mainstream school and that most of the parents in our community have, have seen and so it's really important to keep them in the loop and to keep them positive about inquiry and for them to know that it actually includes much of what they would have done in school, but also pushes that on further into these higher order thinking skills. We have, um, we use the Seesaw digital portfolio. So pretty much everything our kids do is immediately shared with parents. Parents can see it, comment on it and discuss it at home and then uh, feedback with me. And I think the IB does a pretty good job also of bringing parents into talk. They have the per, the student-led conferences. Um, so I think small things like that, and I think both Chris and Armin again talked about how they were actively getting parents into their school for this purpose. And I think it goes both ways. I th I fully agree. I think schools that don't educate the parents on their methods are just providing a parent community with the rope needed to hang the school because unless you're explicitly explaining processes like inquiry or you know the models you're using in the school it's left up for the parent to make sense of what's going on and i think most of us myself included and i hate to admit it because it frustrates me with others we want to see what we knew in school. And when something doesn't look like what we saw in school, you get one of two reactions. Either, wow, I wish it had been like that. Yeah. But more often than not, I don't know about this. It's mm -hmm. not what I knew. 
And what I knew got me where I am. So I don't know about this thing. And it creates the skepticism. Whereas if you're open, transparent, honest, and a positive influence for educating, that goes a long way. And I'm speaking from a little bit of experience. I know last year, the school we were at, I'd done a few parent information evenings discussing just the idea of reading comprehension strategies and just talked about the idea that, hey, most often when we're thinking of reading, we think about reading as you know decoding, sounding out the words. Well, there's at least seven other skills that are going on. Once you've sounded out the words, can you connect that to stuff in your real life or in other texts? Can you, you know, can you infer, make predictions? Can you realize when you haven't understood something? Essentially presenting this idea. And the parents who were there were so appreciative and so receptive and had a lot of follow-ups with me to say, mm. like, wow, this has changed the way I'm reading with my child. I've taken a few of your suggestions and it's totally changed reading time at home. The kids love it. I love it now. And I can already see you know, in a month of just asking some of the questions you suggested, my child's engaging with the reading so much more. So those are some examples that works. But it also can work the other way. And I want to yep. go to two points uh, Katerina Yasko made from Ukraine. Mm. She had said the kind of irony was that in an unstable country like Ukraine, it actually led to more opportunities for community action. And it sounded like more local community responsibility emerging to ensure the well-being and development and support of their children. And she had mentioned the idea of people taking responsibility for the teaching of their children beginning to emerge more and more. Yeah. Um, she didn't go too far into the specifics of it, but I thought that was an interesting point that as I was just saying, of course, schools have a role to better articulate what we do. I think in the development value, we also can make a space to be influenced, impacted, maybe not completely led, but certainly directed and influenced and respond to the actual culture and society and relationships that are entwined with the school. Yeah, I think what you're saying that I fully agree with that it, there's still a very much a one-way street as information is going from the school and the parents are receiving. And to go beyond that, I think what the place to look possibly is, is Jordan because he, by the very necessity of the, of the education system that he'd done with the unschooling, he's, he then began to see this as co-parenting with other parents who were unschooling their student, their, their, their kids, right? So once you remove teachers and schools from that equation, everybody's a teacher and you're co-teaching. Now, obviously, we talked about some of the potential drawbacks of that system, but Obviously, Jaron is going into it with the right mind and supporting the his his child to in to meet the needs of the child. And you bring those children together, you bring the parents together, and you've essentially got again. If I go back to uh, the Illich book of de-schooling society, you've got a a society that is educating children together without actually having that school, classroom, teacher, paradigm. And that's still a little bit hard for me to get my head around you, how you could do that. 
because I don't think we're quite ready there to deconstruct the school to the point where it doesn't exist anymore. But obviously there is a lot of, there's a lot to begin by going and inquiring into what is gained by unschooling networks. The I, yeah. one point that I would, uh, how do I even say this? One positive, uh, one potential positive of the unschooling movement is by removing the school building, by removing the administrative structures, by removing the quote unquote teachers in the role as they've been there, you're removing a lot of systemic demands mm. that end up trickling down, that there are requirements of a student to uphold in order for the maintenance and continuation of that building, that teacher's job or role or paycheck, and the school's structure and function. As we said, this could go horribly wrong, or there's the other end of the spectrum, which is authentic, well-intended, well-informed parents who have a de developmental mindset may be able to offer more than a school, possibly, I'm saying this is best case scenario, yeah. may be able to offer more than the actual school could itself because the school would have had many of its own competing needs that would have to be met in order to provide the schooling experience. Whereas in unschooling, if you can take those needs out, that there's less energy <laughs> in, in the experience needed to keep the school, the teachers, yeah. and that sort of thing going. And that can be redirected to this healthy, caring, developmentally-minded community. I think best-case scenario, that's one of the huge upsides that unschooling can have. And yeah, with the, with the, the big caveat that we do not want to lose any of the positives from the three paradigms that we've gone through, and they were all heavily anchored to that, school building and those systems we don't want we the <laughs> the inquiry here is not how do we get rid of those things the inquiry is how do we keep and improve on the healthiest aspects of all of them and so can we take that self-discipline that ambition and that sensitivity and that focus of development and have it met by the parent kinship community rather than relying on the school to provide that. Yeah, another, another series of episodes there to <laughs> just chalk up. Well, I'm going to go grab my... fractal episode. It's a Mandelbrot. I am going to go grab myself the customary large cold glass of pineapple juice. Um, it's been... As pretty, we do when it's time to wrap up. As, as we do when it is time for me to see, it's 8.45 and I have to go and get my daughter ready for bed in 15 minutes. Um, I, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking through these and digging into the wisdom of pearls from those six interviews. I didn't think it would stretch over to as many hours as the interviews themselves, but rich pickings, McLeod. Thank you for this whole thing thanks for this synthesis o'leary and let us return in two to four earth weeks to begin to discuss health 
And the, as we alluded to earlier, we mean specifically the health and unhealthy, the healthy and unhealthy manifestations of the self-discipline value in school, the healthy and unhealthy manifestations of ambition, healthy and unhealthy versions of sensitivity and healthy. And maybe you will have enough to understand the unhealthy sides of the development value as well. All right. Looking forward to it. Thanks, <laughs> Brennan. See you later. Bye. We hope this episode has been interesting. If you want to connect, we're on Twitter, or you can join our private Facebook group just searching Reinventing Education Podcast. Request and we'll let you in. We're kind of building a community there. So far, it's kind of been sharing news stories that reinforce our narrative about the four values competing against one another in education. But let's see if we want to organize to do more than that there. Feel free to pass this episode on to others who give a damn about what's going on in education. From Brendan and myself, attention is a valuable thing these days. Thanks for having some of yours on what we're saying.